Part of what makes us human is a self-conscious sense of duty. We do not always feel capable of doing that which we know we ought to do, and so we hesitate. We know we are naked, so to speak, and this potent awareness of our vulnerability has massive implications for how we interact with the world. Humans also seem to be exempt, or at least able to willingly subvert, the key doctrine of natural selection and of commercial enterprise. Expand or die. We are aware of the world's limited resources and fulfill our roles as caretakers of the planet, moderators of the comings and goings of puddles and gene pools alike. Today, this takes the form of sweeping floors and running endangered animal welfare campaigns. Of course, it also takes the form of herding, planting, and taking inventory. It is, however, arguable that the human race has done a poor job in the resource management department. Let this be said not out of concern for the well-being of the earth. It takes a certain arrogance to claim that a bad case of the humans could push a celestial body so far from homeostasis that it somehow dies. In the days of kings, we had the incredibly wealthy and the incredibly poor. Today, in the era of modern social organization, the age of the middle class, we have the incredibly wealthy and, by comparison, the incredibly poor. Humans seem to have an insatiable desire for upgrades. It is so easy for a person's basic needs to be met, and yet unspeakable amounts of time, effort, and materials are devoted to meeting these needs in the most extravagant, elaborate ways possible. Every man feels he ought to be a king, and at least buying whole grain bread and $8 deodorant can make him feel like one for a bit. Meanwhile, if everyone bought a speed stick for himself and his neighbor, we could likely solve the problem of world stinkiness overnight. Who knows what kind of inspiration might strike remote modern-day neoliths or scattered urban scavengers once their natural stench is subdued by that icy musk. They would probably be eradicated, along with their dreams, almost immediately by a more powerful governmental entity. Perhaps not. We live in a global society. People are more connected than ever before. The sphere of human empathy continues to expand. This is another trait unique to humans. With each generation, we seem to become more empathetic towards each other and towards the world at large. However, as E.M. Forrester acknowledges in The Machine Stops, which I mentioned in a previous video, we have yet to achieve deep empathy for mere images of another human. The machine is much, but it is not everything. I see something like you in this plate, but I do not see you. I hear something like you through this telephone, but I do not hear you. This fear of human empathy expands in volume, but not in depth. In interactions within our own species, we require, or at least prefer, personal presence and direct interaction in order to achieve such effects. We can care a little bit about a lot of things, but deeply only for a few. It has been argued that the aforementioned expansion is a biological adaptation in response to the world becoming more connected, but given the time-spanning question, it is more likely the result of changes in social conditioning and cultural taste. It seems that as we increase our understanding of the world, we can increase our compassion for it as well. This is probably a good thing and is done mostly out of awe and respect for the vast and comprehensible that science presents to us. We do not, however, live to be empathetic. 
nor do we live only to care for the universe in a physical material sense in the managing of resources or the sweeping of floors. The highest human priority appears instead to be the realization, evaluation, and transmission of ideas. Margaret Atwood explores this in Oryx and Crake, in which the protagonist is concerned that when he is gone, all the words stored only in his head will die with him. Sure, a father is concerned with having an heir to inherit his material property when he passes away, but he is usually much more concerned with the lessons and insights he can pass on to his children today while he is still alive. When we talk to each other and share ideas and experiences, we are essentially trying to make sure we still understand the world properly. We are asking, sometimes implicitly and often explicitly, does that make sense? Am I going crazy? Furthermore, it is worth noting that humans sacrifice themselves for the proclamation of ideas much more frequently than for the right to biologically reproduce. Here again, humans seem to subvert the law of natural selection. But then again, perhaps not. It is not always the ideas themselves that warrant sacrifice, but the belief of the individual that such ideas are important to the improvement and expansion of the human race in some capacity in the context of a future the individual himself will never live to see. And so the sphere of human empathy and of imagination expand across time as well as space. Take, for instance, this excerpt of dialogue from Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. You mean old books? Stories written before space, but about space travel. How could there have been stories about space travel before the writers, Pris said, made it up? In the imagining of space travel... Is it a result of nature's desire for expansion of the species, or does its origin in fiction mean its existence was created merely as a backdrop, a medium for experiencing and elaborating upon the human condition? Was it a dream of the future or a dream of another seemingly unattainable world? It probably depends on the author, perhaps also on the reader. When it comes to human identities and our relationships with them, Philip Dick explains sharply and perfectly in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. It's the basic condition of life to be required to violate our own identity. It's from Dick on page 71. This is true only for humans, not for animals, not for artificial intelligence. An animal finds its identity in its nature, in its instincts. Artificially intelligent beings similarly find their identity in their programming. They are incapable of responding in a way they have not been programmed to. Humans all the time act in direct opposition to their own well-being, sabotaging themselves, forgetting or ignoring their programming either by choice or by necessity. This is not to say that humans can will themselves not to respond to external stimuli entirely, as James Blish claims in his short story, Common Time. If by some means you could cut a human being off from every sense impression that comes to him from outside, he would cease to exist as a personality within two or three minutes. Probably he would die. When authors explore the question of what it means to be human, their readers are encouraged to look at themselves, to find their purpose, metaphysical or otherwise. 
Such stories move us to question our place in the universe, our motives and the changes we try to make, and give us, help us to better understand other people. Our souls cry out, demanding that to be human is more than to be homo sapiens sapiens. Our cells say otherwise, unconsciously going about their biological processes like the programs automatically operating an artificially intelligent being. Who woke us up? Are we awake? 